You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Wednesday at 8 p.m. is 101 and more emas on brave new radio and also the podcast i'm your professor david kirk philp along with dr esteban marconi emeritus yes, yes. marconi emeritus down in mar-a-lago for the count making <laughs> for america thank you so much for all your help wouldn't go near it <laughs> that's good to have you here and so yeah. great guest today it's going to be daniel glass of glass notes Entertainment, I believe, is the full name. Yes, entertainment group. Yes, so it's not just records, entertainment. So we're going to do that. But before we do that, we should remind everybody, make sure you go to Music Biz 101 WP and make sure you sign up for that newsletter. And we also want to make sure that- Has the newsletter been coming out regularly? Uh, no. And then also oh. want to make sure everybody goes to Music Biz listen to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. At yeah. this point, we want to give thanks. Should we give thanks? Sure should. Let's give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Readers Down, St. Vincent Kiss, and Zach Brown. It's only one place for you to go for your band's business management. Go to VB CPA.com when you're ready. And we want to give th thanks to Christine. Boy. They, a wealth manager, at the Forefront Group, and that's F-O-U-R, Front Group. Christine has helped so many professionals all over the world manage their investments and plan out for their retirement. When somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, you want to think about the Forefront Group, and you want to go to Christine.oi. They, at Forefront.com. Leave the last oil up for savings. And you should save your money. And by managing your band, seventh edition. Later yeah, can't wait. E one. Could be well, we had another letter today informing us that they're moving along. Yes, it's it's how we picked out cover art basically today or yesterday, mm -hmm. and um, they're talking about the production schedule of making a physical book, which is awesome. Yeah. So it's going to be a very very good time. An ebook as well, and I don't think it's going to be an audio book though. 
Not yet, unless maybe a podcast will just read to you, to our fine listeners. That would be excellent. Yes. So we are now about to have Daniel join us. Okay. Instead of starting with your history and all that, what are you excited about now in this business? I think, you know, now that we're doing this interview in, uh, with this light at the end of the tunnel of, of COVID-19, I'm, I'm really excited to get back to live shows. Um, we formed our company 14 years ago uh, with a theme and a mantra and a culture of live music. And it's been very difficult for us for the last year, which is, yeah. uh, you know, we're kind of commemorating it this week as one year. Uh, and and I'm, I'm shocked how well we responded, but that's a separate issue. But on the issue of what I'm excited about, it's really getting back to festivals, shows, conference rooms, conferences, um, just getting together. And uh, I, I, I'm excited about being around young people who mm-hmm. need the socialization. If, if I think, you know, so my excitement really is live. It's, it's all about live. And uh, a few minutes ago, I saw the Life is Beautiful Festival uh, email came in for a September festival in Las Vegas with great headliners. And uh, I do hope it happens. And uh, I'm starting to see tour dates come in for November, December, January, and February. That's the most exciting thing to me, to let artists breathe. Um, we, we're not a, uh, a company that puts out novelty records. We're not a company that puts out you know, one-off pop hits. We, we really build, nurture, and enhance and embellish careers. And uh, I can't wait for these artists to get back to what they do best and, uh, you know, and, and bond with the people and the fans. Sure. Were you able to sign any artists during this last year? Yes, we signed an artist at the very beginning of the pandemic, but we had met her before. Her name is Silvana Estrada, a Latin artist from Mexico. And uh, she had come in and met us in New York and she uh, played her instrument, which is a, a very uh, bespoke instrument called a cuatro. And uh, we signed her and her record will be coming out probably May, June of this year. And uh, it's been tough. She, she did get COVID, her manager got COVID. And, uh, but, but she did get to finish her album over the period. Um, we, we did sign an artist about a week ago uh, who we met and it's, it's interesting relationships. So many years ago, my wife and I were at the Medem Festival in Cannes. Mm-hmm. And we met these people that were lovely from Big Yellow Dog Music. And, you know, when, when you go to Medem, especially old Medem and vintage Medem, it was really about songs and publishers. And I knew they were very special. They're from Nashville. And about, I don't know, five, six months ago, and again, time is like a blur during pandemics. So I don't know if it was five months, eight months. Okay. I received a call from a Carla Wallace from Big Yellow Dog Music out of Nashville. And she said, I have a special artist. I'm going to send you some music. Her name was Cecilia Castleman. And uh, long story short, we met on Zoom, which was really weird uh, as a first date and a second date. And then she played for us, which took a lot of guts and captivated us. And I think she was 19 at the time when we met her. Uh, And we signed her about a week and a week and a half ago. And she's being produced by two great people, two friends, uh, Daniel Tajan and Ian Fitchuk. Mm-hmm. who you may know from the Grammys, from uh, uh, um, Casey Musgraves and Marin Mars. Mm-hmm. So the pedigree is incredible. The production team and the, the publishing and, and, and Cecilia's drive. Um, so we'll have new music from her, you know, towards, uh, towards the summer of this year. So that's, 
That's a great story. But but she's the only one. It was a very difficult time for me personally of not seeing bands and artists live. It's not my thing. And uh, Zoom is is not the way to do it. No, it's not the way to do it. But we're on we're on to about seven new things, which is really very fertile. Mm-hmm. We have the most artists coming to us since that very, very hot period when we had Temper Trap, Two Door Cinema Club, uh, Mumford and Sons and Phoenix all hitting at the same time. This moment right now feels even hotter for us with A&R and talent coming in, I have to say. Good, good. Yeah. It's interesting, I mean, your career is so much into basically indie labels and indie bands for the most part yet you've been sort of like an inside guy. I mean, you were at Universal and you were, you know, with the SBK and EMI and, and so on. And, and how did you do this balance act, balancing act? Well, it was, it was really an imbalancing act because um, each one of those steps started independently. So there are four periods. First period was Chrysalis Records. Right. And I'm still very, very dear friends with the founder of Chrysalis, Chris Wright. Uh, I spoke to him last week. Um, I spoke to him oh, a few days ago, I should say. And, uh, and that company, unfortunately, was bought by EMI. Um, and uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, so that independently, I never wanted to leave. You know, I told people in those days, uh, I, I went to Japan. And I saw people at their desks who had been there for 30, 40, 50 years in the music industry. And I was thinking my dream would be, could I ever rise to the head of Chrysalis, go to the UK, bring my family up in England, which, which I loved. And uh, that was the dream is to be a Chrysalis my whole life and grow. Because I, I had been at Chrysalis for like the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th Jethro Tull record. So yeah. I missed two generations. Yeah. But, I, but, I, but I love the longevity of career development. And they were, if you know the origins of Chrysalis, it was two live concert promoters who got together um, and formed this great company, which was with 10 years after and Procol Harum and, and, uh, and, and uh, Leo Sayer and uh, I could go on and on. But you know, then, then the year of Blondie and Pat Benatar and Billy Idol right. and you know, Huey Lewis. So uh, I was there for seven years, but that indie world led to a major. And uh, I, I then joined SBK from the inception, day one. Mm-hmm. And fortunately or unfortunately, it was sold to EMI. Um, I, I was, you know, upset again. Um, you know, the owners did well. Um, we all did well, but it was still three and a half years into a dream. And could you imagine what would have happened with that company thinking about we had Wilson Phillips, Jesus Jones, we had Blur, we had the Ninja Turtles, we had Vanilla Ice, we had, uh, I could, you know, it, it was the greatest startup of all time. And I don't really believe there would have been that Interscope or Giant Records or the companies that began in that era right after us. And uh, we, we did a great job and, and touched every genre, Technotronic, Pump Up the Jam, and all these hits, three and a half years with platinum after platinum after platinum. So uh, that was my second foray into that. And uh, my third foray was um, when Doug Morris and I started Rising Tide Records, which was an independent label uh, financed uh, you know, partially by uh, the um, MCA group. And that became universal. You know, when uh, Edgar Bronfman Jr. 
uh, felt he had to make some moves. And uh, I, was made, I was made head of Universal uh, in America and uh, loved it. And I hope the seeds I planted with people like Steve Leeds, who I brought in my first person. My second person was Monty Littman. Um, I think we planted some pretty good seeds there and I would consider them the preeminent record company of today. Uh, and I'm proud of that. Uh, and then fourth, excuse me. You were aligning yourself with, with independent labels at that time too, right? Yes, yes, yes. And Steve was my greatest helper, Steve Leeds, in that we found uh, Blink-182 and brought that label in. We brought in, uh, not, not me personally, but we under my uh, uh, presidency, we brought in uh, Cash Money Records, which is obviously, you see what's, what's going on with them with, with, with their history and, and great people. We brought in, um, uh, I don't know, about six or seven independent labels in those days. And, and Doug and Mel were very, you know, very aggressive in that world of knowing how to do it because of what Doug did at Warner's and bringing Interscope and other labels in. It was really the basis of, the model was very similar to the Warner Brothers group of music, of bringing amazing entrepreneurs in. If you think of the Warner model, it was the best model for entrepreneurs, whether it was David Geffen or Ahmed Erdogan or Bob Krasnow or Tommy LaPuma, Quincy Jones. Um, and that's really how to do it. Uh, so we were emulating that. And then Danny Goldberg and, and I had a company uh, called Artemis, right. which he founded. And uh, you know that that got caught up in, in kind of hedge fund world, and 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 that really was the impetus. When I saw that going down, my wife and I said, "Let's start the great independent label and take what what we learned at Chrysalis, what I learned from my good friend Jerry Moss at A and M, my friend Chris Blackwell at Island, take all that and form a company based on live music." And I hope we've done a good job the last 14 years in doing that. And that's, that's my dream. And I hope in 25 years, people will say, you know, these guys did the right thing for artists. Right. Can I ask you a quick thing? Um, SBK, mm -hmm. that started basically to be sold? No, no. I don't know. It was, uh, it was started by Stephen Swid, Marty Bandier, and Charles Koppelman. And uh, when I got the phone call, I literally... Uh, they sold Chrysalis, and the day later, I got this call from them, and I love the dream of it. I love the blueprint of it because they were excellent publishers and an excellent producers. At that time, they had Gregory Abbott, Dolly Parton, Barbara Streisand, New Kids on the Block, and a new artist called Tracy Chapman breaking. Yeah. And I wanted to join, and, and they, they had no label. So we started a label family, and it was uh, Katrina and the Waves, and it was Daryl Tooks, but Wilson Phillips was the third artist, and uh, and from there it just blossomed. But I, I wouldn't say that was it. It was it was an investment that EMI had made, and 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 Charles and Marty. Uh, and I, I I don't you know I can't, I can't tell what's in someone else's mind. Yeah, sure. But it was sold pretty quickly at a very very high profit and a very high rate. But we were a, we were a bonanza company. I mean, we were we were you know a hit machine. Right. That was Lefrac too, wasn't it? Um, no, no, no. Uh, that was Marty's past career. No. Ah, okay. No. Because I, I had known Marty because he was a Syracuse graduate. And when I was running the program at Syracuse, I'd come down to New York and see him. And once, I forget if he was with the frack or was SBK. And I kept asking him, well, what do you guys do at, at LaFrac? He says, well, I said, are you in a management firm? No, not exactly. I said, well, you have Barbara Streisand, but you don't manage her. 
you're, you were an entertainment company. I said, where do you fit in? And I couldn't. I well, they, couldn't they, they were really, they really were the A&R. If you think about it. the entertainment company, which is what it was called. Yes. This, this is before me was right. um, a company that matched people, which is really what A&R is about, artist and repertoire. And right. whoever put Barry Gibb and Barbara Streisand together, entertainment company is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, and you think about all the hits they have with New Kids on the Block and, you know, Tracy Chapman and, and David Kirshenbaum, who is still, you know, who's been a dear friend of mine as a producer. Those are, you know, you know, exquisite records. Um, so they had taste and they just made records and then they became big publishers because they did SBK Publishing. Right. And they bought that great April Blackwood uh, catalog. Right. Uh, which was so under, when Larry Tisch sold that, it was so undervalued. It was a brilliant move by Swid Bandier and Koppelman. But then I think yeah. they really wanted to have a hot record company and they did. Um, I think we sold too soon. I, I really do. I, I wish we would have kept it. And uh, Marty obviously did well. Charles did well. I did well. But um, I, I wish we would have kept it. All right. So Artemis seemed like the like a great thing. I mean, that- yeah, it, it, it was, um, it, you know, it, it, you know, I don't know what happened in the end. Um, you know, and, and Danny left, which really was, was hard for me because when Danny left, you know, it was, it was his dream mm-hmm. and I was running it and uh, he left. I was, I don't know, the president or chairman of the company, but uh, he left. It was just, it really gave me the impetus and the drive to start a great independent label. And, uh, but it was his soul. It was his vision and his dream. It's very hard to do that with someone else's his, uh, DNA. And, uh, you know, he and I remain great friends and he's a, he's a great record guy, you know, really, really good music man. Mm-hmm. So what are you most proud of at Glass Notes? I think culture. I would say the culture that we, we dreamt of, uh, my partner Chris and I, uh, we, when Chris Gully and I sat down with the blueprint, it was really to build a family. And, and I remember putting this into the business plan and it was weird because Chris is a finance guy and a very good finance guy. And, I, and, he, and he thought it was a little odd that in the business plan I wrote in the third year of existence or in business, I don't want to spend any money marketing the company or hyping the company. Mm-hmm. If we don't have the communication and word of mouth from artist to artist and manager to manager and agent to agent in the industry, we, we're, we're doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. And by our third year, we had that communication going in the industry. And I know we wouldn't have signed Two Door Cinema Club if it wasn't for Phoenix. Then they went on the road together. So the family aspect of my wife and my kids being around all the time, I think permeated the thought of everything. Yesterday, I spent a lot of time with churches. I met churches managed by really good friends, my my friend, Danny Rogers. And I think about it is that we vacation with Danny, his wife, Liz and kids all over the world, including his native Sydney, Australia. It's very unusual to do things like that. Yeah. It's a family. We met churches when they were just starting, they were just beginning. We went to a little club in Camden. My whole family was there and, and they met us as a family. So I think family is probably the greatest part of it. And um, the few artists that have left or that have, you know, weeded out, as you say, uh, probably didn't belong because um, not that they're not talented. It just, we like nice people. We like people that we can dine with, travel with, hang out with, to be there, to be in Corsica, to be in, in just all over the world we've been with Phoenix. 
yeah. all over the world with Mumford and Sons, all over the world. So I think that's unusual, our relationship with our artists. Um, you know, my son and I, my, my youngest son, Liam and I went on a father-son trip on a tip from an agent named Tom Windish. And we went to Oslo, to Norway for a father and son weekend. And on a tip, we discovered Aurora. Mm. And, you know, she's playing, you know, Brian Ferry's on one stage, then she goes on. And it was like, you know, it was magic. So if you can do that with your family, yeah. and Aurora, Aurora and my son are the same age. And mm. uh, I got to meet Aurora's parents. I met Aurora's sister, one of who got married last week. So it's, I think the answer to your question is it's family. It really is. And I, yeah. I, I look at it and whenever something happens to the family, we get really concerned. And I think my wife is like the aunt or the mother maybe to, to a lot of the artists. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think it's that way. Right. Do you think many artists need that? And that, like they latch on to a family or something that's, um, that's strong, something that's connected? They know we have good values. I, 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 I'm not sure if they need it. I think they come to us because they know we're not going to meddle in their art. We're not going to mess with the sequence of their record or tell them we'll give them tools. We'll give them advice. We, and they, but they know something. We're going to work them hard. We are detailed oriented. We're passionate. We are going to be global in our, in our internet and in, in scope of how we work. But I think they come because they know they're going to get a shot and they're going to get exposure. Uh -huh. I don't think that's different than when Bob Dylan signed to a company or why churches or Childish Gambino uh -huh. signed to us. I think it's to know, and in the, in the um, courtship, all we really discuss is we want you to play at Madison Square Garden. We want you to play at the big stage in Glastonbury on the pyramid, on the pyramid stage. We want you to play on the biggest stage of Coachella or Bonnaroo or Telluride or Newport Folk or Hyde Park. Mm -hmm. And we want you to be on the Grammys. We want you to be on the Brits. We want you to be on the Junos. And that's ambitious. And I like an independent label that, that is got a little sense of confidence and arrogance mm -hmm. and punches above its weight. Because mm -hmm. the companies that we are trying to emulate and trying to be inspired by those A&Ms, those chrysalis islands, they had no issue with competing with the big people. Yeah. And um, we expect to be treated that way. And that's part of why you work at Glassnote is that expectation and you have to wear that. Your posture is different than any other label. Yeah, yeah. Is that why you really, you started the management firm as well? You know, we started the management firm really because we had a, a great guy in the company and uh, he, he's no longer with us. His name was, you know, Jeff Newberger. And I really thought we could do something there. Um, it, you know, we, it's on pause now. And uh, it, it was never a conflict only because Jeff really ran it separately. And uh, it's not an unfulfilled dream because management is a, is a, is a whole nother trip of 24 seven, uh, you know, babysitting and, 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 and a lot of psychology and psych 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 you know, uh, stuff like that. But I think it's, um, it's something I'll readdress if you find the right entrepreneur one day. Um, I'm very excited about publishing right now. That is something, I think everything is getting bought and, 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 and multiple out. I'm starting from scratch. We yeah. just started a new company called Connection literally weeks ago with Jackie Post, who is a great veteran. And yeah. we are looking for the next great writers and we're gonna give them the same 
TLC as the record company. And Jackie runs it independently. Um, I support her. It's really, it's really her thing. But I, I love that world. And I love writers and I love songs. And uh, I like producer writers also. And I'm trying to attract that. Um, so whoever hypnosis doesn't buy, right. we're going to try and find the new ones. We had them last week. Uh, last week? Yeah, yeah, last week we had Mirka Mucuriatis from Hypnosis on, uh, yeah. with us for a couple yeah. of hours. Yeah. Steve had interviewed him, so we had him on. He's on a great role. He's on a oh, great he's role. Oh, he's yeah. hot. Yeah. No yeah. question. Yeah. So, Daniel, you had a publishing company, and then you sold it, and then you started again from scratch. So why did you sell it uh, a few years ago, the, the other one? A very seductive man named Willard Ardritz from Cobalt, uh, who I really, really like. Uh, Willard, is a, you know, Willard is a tech guy. Uh, he's a visionary. He changed the world of publishing and made it disruptive, transparent, and friendly for many, many writers, including Max Martin, Paul McCartney, and so on, and Phineas. Uh, but you know, I, I knew he, would, he and his team would take good care of it, and we did very well. And I still was still in the family with AWOL. And I, I'm, it was something that it was a, it was a one time only thing. And uh, I don't regret it at all. And I, you know, you have to learn also, what could we have done better? And I think now I know what we can do better. And I know it over the long term of building and building and building. And uh, this is not one I want to sell. So this is, we're going to start this one and really, really go slowly. But I look at Almo and Rondor, which was started by my friend Jerry Moss at a and Yeah. And I love the way they started. They started with a Jackie Post. They had one employee. And the first client they signed, the Beach Boys. So they did okay. And I think they had three employees after a couple of years. So I like building small and slow. And if you find quality like the Beach Boys, I think you, you could do okay. So we're, we're going to wait and find quality. Uh, Jackie actually has her eye on two producer writers right now who I hope she gets, hope we get, and uh, but that'll be a long thing. But I don't regret that with Willard. Uh, he's a really good guy. Mm -hmm. I always thought of um, another class of, of labels or companies that uh, I call them boutique labels that really have very little, um, very little fat on them. And I always thought of A&M being that way. And Arista to a point for a while was like that. Yeah. Uh, but A&M, you know, A&M was so beautiful in that, you know, who wants an office in Paris? Like, I love the fact they had an office in Paris. I asked Jerry, like, like why? He said, why not? Pourquoi pas? So <laughs> I, and my wife and I live like that. You know, to us, I, I, would, I would go to hear a Phoenix demo. <laughs> you know, I fly to Paris to hear, I, we love France. So uh, the Strumbellas had a hit in Italy. We went to Italy. We had a number one record. So, um, you know, I, I love the, the, the flair of life. But, you know, A&M was small, but they bought Charlie Chaplin's lot. Yeah. Probably one of the greatest assets of A&M yeah. in Los Angeles. That's vision. Uh, the office is on 57th and Madison. The only, there's only one reason we're on 60th and Lex. It's because of A&M and Chrysalis. I want to be like them. And probably the next move would be what Virgin did when they bought the townhouse. Gosh. So, you know, if there's a townhouse around, I'm, we, we, we wanna, we'll probably do something like that. But, you know, I, I study history every day. I loved, you know, Barry Gordy's vertical operation in Detroit. I love what, you know, I, I pick Chris Blackwell's brain whenever I can. Uh, and I, 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 I wish young people would do that. I wish young people would sit and talk to more mentors 
and I wish mentors would talk to more mentees. I think it's really lacking in our business uh, for the future of people, which is why I put so much time into internship programs and giving back and mentoring people. So uh, I, I've been mentoring a young black man from Brooklyn College Radio over the last year who's given me a lot of, I know I'm helping him a lot and I've connected him with the biggest people in the industry, but I don't think he knows the pleasure and gratitude I get out of it when I see him do things. And he's a really, really good guy. And uh, I hope he stays in our business. Yeah, you mentioned um, Barry Gordy in Motown. What do you think uh, actually happened at Stacks? Did they just go bankrupt? Did the um, producers that were doing the legwork started to become vice presidents and? Well, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. Um, well, this is, I mean, this is, for, this may be too, this may be too distant, but I married Deborah Weiss. Mm. Deborah Weiss is the, is the daughter of Sam Weiss, may right. he rest in peace, brother of Jaime Weiss. Jaime Weiss was a very, very important part of Stax mm. and uh, really helped Al Bell in running that company. So one of the great things in my career was going to Memphis a few years ago with one of our bands and I did a Grammy presentation. It was a whole day called GPS. And Al Bell took me under his wing. Ah. I got to see Al Bell in, in, in action. And I don't know what happened at Stax. I just, it was probably the most immersive, greatest music experience of my career. Those two and a half days. Um, yeah. Nothing against any other city in the world. I had more musical infusion. And, I, and I, I remember seeing Keith Richards at a party. I was at a party with my friend Randy Lennox on top of the Standard Hotel. It was for a premiere of their video or something. I don't, I don't remember. And I got to speak to Keith for like three minutes. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to know, like, what was Memphis like for you? What? And he basically said it better than I could ever say. It was like, it was the, we needed it. It was soul. Mm -hmm. It was R&B. And we, we, did, we wanted to get that. You know, it really, it's, it's, a, it's an infusion you get. I don't really know what happened at Stacks, though. Uh, you know, yeah. what? It's, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I loved my visit there. And, I, and Al was really generous with his time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it was great. We talked a lot about, uh, you mentioned Barry Gordy and, and his vertical mm -hmm. structure of Motown. And, you know, you've talked about Chrysalis and A&M and, and Jerry Moss. You've been around for a very long time and you've seen a lot of, uh, companies and how they're structured. How would you compare then Glassnote and the structure of Glassnote to all of these other companies that you've been around, especially indie labels? And what have you kind of uh, copied from others and what have you kind of uh, molded to fit the music industry for 2021? I think we uh, copied is, you know, not copied, but I think I've been inspired by the international scope of those companies. Chrysalis was very international. We were working Australian artists, UK artists, uh, you know, artists from you, you name it, obviously United States, Canada. I think international is one. Um, I think like A&M, Jerry, you know, Jerry was a promotion guy when he started and a yeah. great one. He actually worked for my father-in-law. He worked for Sam Weiss. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they had Superior Records on 11th Avenue in Manhattan, um, you know, I sat down with Jerry once and I asked him about a deal. And I said, what do you think? He said, take the money to get the records played. Yeah. And what he meant by that was you need airplay. And 
airplay today is a different term. It's playlisting. It's 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 a whole different thing, but it's the same thing really because it's it's playlists at radio stations, which are now called uh, digital service providers. But I I guess the only thing we we're not doing the same is they both have powerful publishing arms, which we need to catch up and get that running. Chrysalis had a great publishing company. We published Huey Lewis. We published you know a lot of the artists that we had. Billy Idol. Um, I, I believe we worked with a lot of Pat Benatar's writers. So I think we have to do a really good job in the next five to 10 years building that up to be uh, synergistic, not synergistic, but complementary, I would say, because I don't think there should be a conflict of signing both. I, I, I think the culture of the two companies, their, their visionaries led it by, the, by very left of center artists. I think when you have the police and Miles Copeland and you have Janet Jackson and you have you know what 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 they did with Peter Frampton in their in their in their heyday and what they did with so many I, I go on and on with, uh, with Super Tramp and just so many hits at A and M and at Chrysalis I, I had a ringside seat into seeing things and where I got my live thing was from Chris was was, was from Chris Wright and uh, and and Terry there which was when you meet somebody and I've said this before you know in the past is. When you, when you meet an artist, band, artist, if you don't anticipate, if you don't see the arena, the Madison Square Garden, whatever it is, you should walk out of the room. And that's a brutal thing to say. And I, I, I notice when I go against that, I don't do so well. When I get caught up in, in, a, in, a, in a, uh, a statistical research record or whatever it is, those are not artists. So I, I want to keep that focus which says when you meet them and it could be raw i like i remember seeing mumford and sons for the first time at the mercury lounge and it, you know we all say the same thing there were 20 people there i could not believe what i saw and i felt madison square garden i actually felt stadium so i flew to london a few days later because i had to pinch myself it can't be they can't be that good and they were <laughs> they were that good and it didn't bother me that Phoenix had three records that just middled before I met them. And I, I barely knew them. I knew of them. But when I met them, and I met them in Paris, it was like meeting, like, like the great, they were a band that I knew was going to be. And a few weeks after we signed them, they were on Saturday Night Live. A few weeks after we signed them. So I think that's what we had in common. And we like to eat well, we like to travel well. I think if you look at Chrysalis and A&M and Island, it, it, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a common thread. They were all friends, by the way. They distributed each other, they, they, they mentored each other, they helped each other. And uh, I, I think we're a lot like them. We're smaller, um, we're like little baby. We're a baby, I think, in our years. We're only 14 years old. But I think in 10 years, you know, we'll have three or four more seminal all-time artists and then one day I hope somebody will say, wow, that, that's an important company. And, yeah. so, uh, it's, so it's interesting because A&R in 2021, you're still talking, um, you're, you're a record guy, you know, your music and you mentioned you, you, it's got its vision and you, you mentioned how it doesn't have to be the, art, the indie artist who has the most streams right now. You're not going to SoundCloud necessarily and finding that one person who's had that one sort of SoundCloud thing or maybe that one TikTok hit. You know, you're looking for something bigger and you're going with, with a feel. 
that that's that's different from what a lot of the major labels are doing right now when it comes to signing artists. Yeah, I mean, I we're breaking an artist named Jade Bird right now. She's a UK artist. She's now moved to Austin, Texas. She's actually in New York today shooting an album cover. Very ambitious young artist. Um, she played for us. The songs were incredible. She went upstate New York. She worked with a great producer in Simone Felice, who did the Lumineers. Now she's just worked with Dave Cobb, who's one of the great hit machines of the world, and in Nashville, and, and, a, and a great guy. Um, she's the real deal. And she's been recognized by the Brandy Carlisles and the Dolly Partons and the Cheryl Crows already. That she's going to be an all-time artist. Um, statistically, she's doing well. You know, she posted something two days ago on International Women's Day, and uh, you know, it, it it went people went crazy over it. But that's not the big thing with her. Is when you listen to a radio station, whether it's WFUV or you hear Jade, and you know it's Jade Bird. You you listen to Radio One, and you know it's Jade Bird. She's a one of a kind. And she's in a lane that no one's in because you can't you can't put her in a in, in a package. She's not Americana. She's not folk. She's not rock. She's not UK. She's Jade Bird, and those are the greatest artists. So they create their own lane, the way a Billie Eilish just did, mm -hmm. and became that. Drake did it, and and The Weeknd did it. And it's um you, you want to sign those unbelievable artists, and I hope we have a few of those because there's no one like them. There, you know. I, I listen to radio stations like Alt Nation, which I love, and Sirius XMU, and I hear Phoenix soundalikes once or twice an hour. I'm happy about it because I, we have the original. <laughs> and I, I listen to Triple J Radio a lot on, on, uh, on streaming devices from Australia, and I hear Phoenix again once an hour, you know, by, by different artists. I don't want to name them because they might be insulted if I if I say that. But you know, it's um it's a compliment. But now you have to find the next original. And it's um it's it's hard because we do like left of center artists, and we like we like artists that are not typecast. And I I don't believe people buy things on genre. I think they buy things of quality. And I'm betting on when we come out of COVID, that people will want to go up, not dumb down. They're gonna want a better lyricist. They're gonna want singular artists that write for their own music. We believe in that. We've had very very few records in the history of our company that have been either even co-written, which is again, counterintuitive to most of the industry. You've got a lot of hit records on the charts written by two to 12 writers. Mm -hmm. um, we've gone against that. We believe in the singer song. We believe in the band. I, I find major labels don't even believe in bands anymore because it's too mm -hmm. tough. It's the road, it's the whole thing. I love the road. Mm -hmm. And I think bands are gonna be huge again in 22, 23 and 24, yeah. Yeah. massive. Do you yeah. think Jade Bird broke because of Left Sets? Because remember, Left Sets wrote something about her 18 months ago. I remember reading it, and right after that, she, because I listen to a lot of the same radio stations that you do, you know, whether it's The Current or uh, WXBN or, or FUV. Um, and then she broke big on AAA, and it was like right after he wrote that. I don't know if that was. Well, it helped. I mean, listen, it's, Bob, Bob has great taste, and, and, and I consider him a friend, and I respect, you know, a lot of his intellect. Uh, but I, I, I don't think Jade Bird is, Jade Bird is broken yet. So um, it's a nice, it, I'm flattered by your comment, but I, I think she has a long way to go. To me, it's about your third, fourth and fifth album. It's about, you know, where, where you're going and, and building up an audience. To me, when you're playing Radio City and Madison Square Garden in New York, then you might be broken. You know, we're, we're just about there with churches. 
and we're on that cusp of Radio City into Madison Square Garden. Like we're one song away and I think we have it. Uh, and, then, and then you sit back and you're backstage and go, we did it. Um, so I think that's Jade, you know, there's magical moments, you know, when she played at Newport, it was magic. And she played with Hozier, it was magic. Louis Capaldi, uh, Father John Misty and Jason Isbell. Um, but, you know, she's unique. She's unique. Uh, I, 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 you know, I thank Bob for doing that, but it's a part of it. It's a little part of it. And you're speaking about, when you speak about the, the current Jim and David, and you speak about, you know, Bruce and the team at WXPN, that's the lifeblood of our company. Mm. That's our culture. That's our community. And I'm very protective of that community. I'm a, I'm a member of that community and I'm fiercely uh, protective of it. You know, mm -hmm. our, our credibility. I don't like when outsiders try and come in and buy it or co-op it. Did you miss out on Matt? Did you miss on Maggie Rogers then? Were you? Cause, cause. No, I, I, you know what? I, it, uh, I've missed on a few, you know, mm -hmm. I, 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 I regret you know, five things maybe in the last 14 years and I, I, it's my fault. But the good news is, as my boss at Chrysler said, if you didn't get it and didn't know about it, then you're a failure. But if you knew about it, didn't get it, it meant you had more time for your kids and your children, your artists. Uh, Maggie came to see us. She has the greatest managers, Michael McDonald and Jonathan Eshek. They came right. to see us. I spent a lot of time with Maggie. It was, it was a nice time because, uh, you know, Donald Glover, who we had huge success with for seven years, uh, went to NYU. Maggie went to NYU. We had great meetings. I consider her a friend. Um, I we tried to sign her, and uh, we didn't. But but I consider her a real friend, and an ally, and someone I would support. And I have a feeling we'll be doing collaborations. She's phenomenal. So we didn't miss that. We tried. Yeah. We tried. But but she but she would have fit in the family beautifully. She's like extended family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you, what's the, um, what is the average age of your A&R guys? Oh, well, you can't say guys, because we have Not people. I meant to say that. <laughs> well, uh, people, yes. They're young. I mean, they're young. They're, you know, uh, they're, they're one third my, <laughs> probably one third my age, some of them. Uh, they're, they're young, but our A&R is very unique. I'm very, I'm, I share. I share a lot with my kids. And thank God, a lot comes to us. We get information, it could be an attorney, it could be an agent, it could be a tip from who knows, uh, you know, managers. I think my number one source, you're making me think now, of, of music would probably be live agents and club owners at this moment, which uh -huh. I love, I love. My number two source, other artists, other artists from other companies, and number three might be producers. Number four might be publishers. So I think we're in very good stead right now with the people that are coming to us. Like when Carla came to us with, with uh, Cecilia Castleman. Um, we found Silvana Estrada because of a great agent at the WME team, who's one of the most dominant forces in Latin music today, um, uh, Ashley Gonzalez. So I think those are the sources of A&R. And then I share with the team. And then I play it for our head of sync our head of radio promotion, our head of digital, our, our head of marketing. Uh, Chris Scully's you know, my partner, he has exquisite taste. Our UK head, Scott, has great taste. And I, want, I love to know when the music can travel. Um, so it, it is somewhat of a democracy, but it's not. Mm. You know, I, I do make the decisions. 
uh, in the company. And, uh, but I do take the input. But when we do embrace an artist, we really like the artist to make their own records and do their own thing. We listen to things, but the best is when the artist gets it done themselves. Mm -hmm. it, always, it always comes out the best. Their aesthetic, it's their vision, their dream. Are your deals uh, licensing deals or are you owning the masters? Is it case? Oh, it's, each deal is confidential, uh, uh, but, I, but I will say we did the split 50-50 deals from the beginning of our company. We've never done what I, what I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think we've ever done the old, the old fashioned royalty deals, which I didn't think were fair. Because in those deals were deductions, were packaging things. You know, we, we're, we're a digital company. We, we began our company at the end of Napster in the beginning of Spotify, at the end of the Yahoo era and the end of the MySpace era into the new, in the end of AOL. So we really were a very progressive digital company Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and permissive digital company. But I would say for the most part, I think profit split is the only way to go uh, with things. I can't discuss whether we license things for one year or a thousand years. Uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not fair to the uh, confidentiality, but I will tell you, they're very fair, mm -hmm. as we do. Do you have any faith in vinyl? A lot, yes, a well, lot of faith. I just. I just bought a Ravel, I think it's pronounced Ravel turntable for myself, which wow. I'm in love with, R-E-V-E-L. Uh, and uh, I do, our business is up. Um, Chris Scully, who's my partner, his grandfather invented the Scully lathe, which mm. cuts records. Um, he's a, you know, the family story, which is, Google him, it's, it's, it's great. And uh, we, are, we are nuts about our vinyl, our 180 gram vinyl. Uh, we do really, really well. We've had, uh, the last few months, our vinyl has been doing amazing. Our, you know, whether it's Childish Gambino, whether it's Mumford and Sons, uh, uh, Phoenix, um, even the Strombellas, everything is doing really well. And I think people like it. It shows. Uh, I'm a huge vinyl fan, and I, I buy a lot of vinyl. I just bought my. I just refreshed my Chet Baker. I just refreshed my. Uh, my wife showered me with all kinds of Simon and Garfunkel vinyl. Um, yeah. I've got, uh, what else just came in? Uh, we just bought West Side Story again, you know, a remastered version. Um, All right. we, we have some beautiful vinyl, uh, Coltrane. Uh, got some great, we, we just bought some amazing vinyl. Yeah, great. Well, well speaking of albums, uh, the trend these days, especially on the independent side is, and I'll just ask you the question, singles versus albums. Do you think, let's talk about your recommendation and I know it's maybe artist by artist or genre by genre, but uh, for indie artists who uh, don't have maybe the pockets of, of a glass note or someone else, what do you think about the idea of putting out one song every six weeks, every eight weeks, and you put out, and at the end of the year, you call it an album on Spotify. That way you have something to promote all year long. Uh, I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. I think that's fine. I, I think song by song is great. I think as long as you're building, um, you know, we have, we have, in some cases, eight to nine fingers tied behind our back because of no touring. You know, to me, I think the artist development uh, natural state is being retarded right now by no touring and no conference rooms and no meetings and no, no meet and greets with your fans, no in stores. So uh, I would say song by song is fine, build it into an EP. It's gotta mm -hmm. be quality. I would tell any indie artist, putting music out that's, that, that's obligatory, that's gratuitous, 
that's just for the sake of timing is a waste of time in any world, whether you're putting out comic books or you're putting out uh, TV show episodes. So it's quality. Um, and the people speak. I mean, the great thing about streaming is you get instant gratification or instant notification about your music. So I do love albums. I do love bodies of work. The thing you have to be very careful about though is when your album comes out, your album is old that night. Yeah. It, you can't like all of a sudden say, oh, the next single is coming. There are certain radio formats where you can do that with, but less and less and less. So you're building into the album rather than putting the album out to start the process of many, many singles. But you know, I noticed that critics still like albums. I think that highbrow people still like albums. Um, artists and managers still want albums. Promoters on tour are still asking artists, when is your album coming? And it's, it may sound old fashioned, but I do think an album is a statement. Um, and I think when you have it, the only difference of today is the country business has changed everything in a good way where you're adding on to your album. So if you look at the Luke Combs and you look at, well, I can't say certain artists today, but certain artists that have records and been successful are adding to them and the deluxes, they're going up to 30, 40 songs on some of these albums. So it's, maybe it started in hip hop, but now country is doing it and extending the life of it. Dua Lipa has done a great job as an artist in extending the life of this album, which came out way at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, last year. So uh, she had something to say, Dua Lipa. It was an entertaining record. It was a dance record. It was fun. The timing was perfect. It was high quality. She did remixes, but it's what you do around it. Phoebe Bridgers is doing a great job in that she is collaborating on almost on a daily basis with really quality people around her music and making a scene. Uh, and, and, and you're seeing the, the, uh, the peer artists respond, but also the older artists, the revered artists that do that. So, uh, but I do love albums and I think we should be leading towards albums. I think it's still a great format. It's important, but along the way, you stay connected to your fans by singles, but don't put an album out if you don't have the quality or the, or, or the, or the bookends of the beginning, middle and the end of an album. And mm -hmm. I think that's a mistake is that we as a business made 10 to 14 song records, albums after one or two hit singles and gave you nothing. You know, we gave you the bun, but nothing in the middle. Where's the beef? <laughs> we, there was no beef. So, uh, it was, a, it was a problem, but I am a fan of an album. I, I, I'm a fan of radio, I'm a fan of TV, I'm a fan of press. So we're old fashioned and we're new fashioned. Right. Well, Marconi, we need to wrap it up. Actually, we're running out. I know, I was gonna say that. Um, Daniel, it would be great to have you back someday because was actually I had about 10 more questions I want about radio, about some other stuff that we just don't have. Anything you want to touch on? Because we can, we well, can do it now. Well, let me just ask you real quick then, how about radio? Um, where, where does radio stand? It seems so reactive as opposed to proactive, you know, especially in a streaming economy, a streaming world where um, the song is getting millions and millions of streams and then it gets added to, to the radio, you know? Um, where, where do you, is radio more of a support for later on if it becomes a, a streaming hit? Where, where do you think radio fits? So I think radio is very healthy. Uh, we attended the Pop Summit yesterday with iHeart and did a presentation. We presented Aurora, Dylan Cartledge, and Church's New Music. And I saw about 120 programmers on a Zoom. 
uh, and the reactions were, they really listened. It's not the greatest, you know, way to present music, but in this climate, you can't do much better than having that, that captive audience. Um, I think I've asked this question of radio people because I get frustrated sometimes. Why did you let Spotify or Apple or Amazon or YouTube or Deezer, you know, beat you to that? Or, you know, it's so huge on YouTube. I think radio knows who their fan and client and customer is. They know it can be rotated. They know it can be front and back announced. They're not that upset when they're quote unquote late, which is when they're looking for your streaming numbers. You know, do you have 50 million or 100 million streams? What playlist you want? What's your TikTok? What's your Shazam? Um, but they do lead with certain records. They are. For example, we have a record right now by the Strumbellas, which is getting minor support at the streaming services. There's a couple of pockets. Pandora is giving us some love and Apple and Spotify. But in general, we're getting most of the support from radio, traditional terrestrial radio. And we're building it that way. And I believe that will help prove a story and then get it playlisted. Because I would say half the curators and playlisters from the great services, it's Amazon, YouTube, they're all from radio. So I think radio is very healthy and I think it's split down the middle. Not every song has to start that way. Um, and they pick up on things. You know, Olivia Rodrigo was a streaming monster, a phenomenon, which then got picked up. But now Olivia Rodrigo is gonna be a solid artist because the song gets rotated. She gets presented differently. She's getting front and back announced. She's gonna do radio shows, I'm sure, as the fall uh, Christmas season starts with the jingle balls and things like that. And that's when the fans will hear and learn more about her. She'll be on podcasts. She'll do that. Radio has really grown. And I give, you know, I give the, the radio owners a lot of credit because they built things around the actual radio station and they built the podcast business well. They've built these, these shows that they do, these award shows, these charity shows, their, their, their year-end shows, uh, and their showcases, their new artist programs. Um, that's so valuable, that stuff. So I think it's a combination. I, 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 I do think the streaming services do, uh, do jump on, consistently jump on music earlier. But when you're looking to really build a record that will last whether it starts at radio or streaming, I still think you need radio to go all the way. I don't think you can go all the way and have a, a real record, certainly not a career without, without radio. And, and the business we're in may not be in the Spotify top 50 every week. We're in a real business because we help sell tickets. We help build careers. And uh, it's, there's a vibrant business out there. But people can't wait to get back and listen to music, you know, whether it's folk or jazz or, or alternative rock and, uh, and music like that. So. Um, I think it's a split. I think each record is almost a different case. And I think that good record companies look at it and discuss it and say, how do we go here? Which one should we go here? Hip hop is very front loaded at streaming. You know, and Apple, I think maybe has done a, an incredible job. And obviously Spotify has done a really good job at that. But in general, um, I, I find it split between radio and streaming. Mm -hmm. Interesting, because I was talking with uh, a little while, a manager, <clears throat> a little while ago with a manager of a major uh, artist in the, in, in the space that you're in, you sort of the AAA format. And his comment was, the num if you add up all the listeners of every AAA station in the United States, Z100 has more listeners than all of those stations combined. And he was saying that it's great to get support from the peak, you know, 107.1 in, in 
you know, uh, Briarcliff Manor, New York, or, or wherever. But um, because they weren't touring because of the pandemic, this band was really hurting because they just weren't getting, they were getting support, but it wasn't leading to streams or sales. And they were really hoping that they could maybe push the needle and sell more more merch on their website. But um, yeah, the, the, the radio thing wasn't in that genre for that, at least for where they were at that moment, wasn't it? You know, not every record sells and not everybody's right. a star, not everybody's a hit. I think, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, before we were discussing, you know, what, what is a hit? And some artists need to take a breather during a pandemic because their world, their strength, their sweet spot is not this. They can't go on social, they can't go on TikTok. So I think there's, it, there is a case to take a time out and write more, produce more, collaborate more, do three books, get inspired, do things like that, watch movies, uh, you know, watch live streams. But I, I, I don't, you know, I don't feel bad for people that way because you, you, you have to understand that the business is not set up, the business is set up to make it fair. There is a level playing field, but you have to be smart enough and know how to read a market. If you don't have a hit, it's a very simple business. Mm -hmm. You know, read it and go where you can have a hit. And I believe the AAA format and the alternative format, a non-commercial format, the world cafes, the tiny desks of the world in America can break you, can support you and make you have an important career where you could live really, really well. So the numbers are deceptive because you build over time to get to the ACL stage or to get to that stuff. So it's, um, but you have to have great music and there are hits in the format. You know, Nathaniel Rateliff had a hit, took a while, but they got a hit. They got him, they got him on, on Saturday Night Live. You know, good management. And the Strokes had a hit during the pandemic. You know, they did okay. And they're gonna make money. So, you know, it's people, a lot of people like cry about, you know, they're not fair to me at streaming, can't make money. You can make money with streaming, you have to have hits. You know, when we don't do well, I blame me because that means that we allowed records to go out where the A&R wasn't exceptional. If your A&R is exceptional, your records are gonna sell. It's, you're gonna find a place for it and it's gonna do well. Maybe not as big as, as a huge streaming hip hop record, but you're gonna do really, really well. And you're gonna do well live. I think our tale just lasts longer than other people's. In our yeah, I think because you had mentioned Phoebe Bridgers earlier, she's a great example of, of who you were talking about, who's really done extremely well in the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and she was on uh, SNL a few weeks ago, and that really created a lot of buzz. And she did a smart thing. She did the Pete Townsend thing and destroyed a guitar, which um, for, a, for a girl to do that, you know, there was this, people were so upset that first that somebody destroyed a guitar, but then, you know, a girl doing the Pete Townsend thing. But it really... It worked and she's done a lot of good things with video and, and she's really, if you look at her numbers overall, they're, they're very good, you know, uh, especially all the- but her, but her pedigree of her career, you know, you have Connor Oberst, you have Ryan Adams, you have uh, Jackson Brown, you have uh, Lucy Dacus, you have uh, Julian Baker. You think of the people who've been involved yeah. and the directors that she's used and her aesthetic and the way she did the tiny desk was unbelievable the way she did right. SNL. So she's very engaged. She's very smart about social media and a uh, very proactive artist and engaging artist. She's you know, someone to watch and I, I, I admire her. And I think she's done a, she's done a great job uh, of what she does, but she's not sitting back and complaining. She's, she's doing it every day. She's going for it every day. And uh, I admire her. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, 
I have one more, Marconi. Do you have any more? Because I do have one more. No, go ahead. Uh, this, my, my final one, I just want to get through because we did hear in an interview that you did for Music Business Worldwide about it. You were 25 years or so into your career before you started Glass, Glass Note. And it took you that, I just kind of want you to kind of pump up some people who um, feel that if by a certain age, if they haven't done the thing they wanted to do, they, it's too late, they can't do it. And you were 25 years in before you really, before you started Glassnote and really did this thing that has made you so proud and made you, you know, who you are today. Can you kind of talk about that and how we are always growing and we get to a point and then that pushes us to that next level? You know, yeah, a, cu couple of, a couple of things about that. Firstly, look at Mo Austin's career, possibly the best record company head ever. Um, came out of really a business accounting world and Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin uh, uh, and Sammy Davis Jr. chose him to be the head of Reprise Records. Uh, you know, he didn't do it when he was in his twenties and you know, he, he did it and he became the papa to, you know, you can countless artists, whether it's Prince or REM or Madonna, you know, just keep the Warner's roster was unbelievable. So I look at Mo uh, as doing it, maybe, you know, a little later in learning the business from some great people. Uh, I read a book once from a guy that I knew in my neighborhood named Steve, Stephen Pollan called Second Acts. And he never thought, he thought you were never too late to start your second or third or fourth act. Um, I don't think I was ready. My graduate, you know, I needed to go to graduate school. I needed to learn. And each, each term and each um, example of my career was, was getting me prepared because I didn't know the business. You know, I learned most of the street from my father-in-law. We were an R&B dance label uh, when I started with him, you know, back in the late seventies at, at Sam Records. Um, and then Chrysalis taught me the taste and the taste of live and the international flair. Each experience was different, learning about promotion. I learned early on in my career, studio work how to produce records, how to mix records, which is what I thought I would do my whole life. I thought I would go from my DJ days into becoming a well-known mixer and producer. Uh, and you take turns along the way. So my advice to people who are, who are frustrated or don't think they have it um, is to look at it as a PhD or a graduate school or a master's program and learn from the masters, learn from the greats, but keep current, keep flexible, keep inventing, keep listening and keep open to new technologies, new things, but go back to the simplicity of the business that you're in. If you're in theater, it's only about the script and then the actors who play that. It's only about the song in our business. Mm -hmm. It's only about the song and the song gets made into a great record. But I've never, made a, I've never met a producer who took a good demo and made it a great record ever. I only met producers who take great demos and make great records. So I, I, I think I didn't know a lot of these things. The other part of it is the older I got, the more I knew what not to sign. What's, what's not a hit, what's not a good person to bring in your company, what's not a good place to go, keep out of danger. It takes years to learn that, having a good supportive family. So I learned all that in my 40s, which is why I then thought I was ready to start this independent label. 
but I would have fallen on my face if I would have started early because I, I, I could have easily taken Sam records and just stayed there my entire life. And we were on the cusp. We were about to sign Curtis Blow. We were in the middle of the whole rap, hip hop, disco dance thing with WBLS, WKTU. We were, it was amazing the competition of those days between Henry Stone and Prelude and TK and Casablanca and Sam and West End Emergency Records. It was great. And, you know, Tommy Boy, who's still my friend, but I needed to learn more. And now I'm doing it with all that education. So that's what I say to people is get the experiences. But today, the problem of our business is, and the pandemic makes it worse, young people are cruising and surfing on LinkedIn as soon as they get their job. They're not willing to make the commitment to stay out that late and go see the artist and hang out backstage till the last person leaves and be there on the rainy days. So, you know, the mentors have to teach or help the next generation to work harder. And I look at the successful people, Julie and Craig, and they work harder than other people. John Janik works harder than other people. Yeah. Monty and Avery work harder. They put the hours in. Yeah. And there's a new generation coming up under, under Scooter Braun, under Troy Carter, under, under uh, the, you know, the cash money guys. Uh, they work really, really, really hard. The quality control people, Kendrick's company, unbelievable work, work workaholics, uh, these people, the country people. So, you know, it's a very, very simple business. And I resent the shortcuts that people think you can take. So sometimes it takes 45 years. You know, it took me 48 years to learn. 48 years to, to, to become ready to put, to buy the laptops and invest your own money and, you know, and, and open up and, and sign what would be yours and, and, and uh, as an entrepreneur and independent. And uh, so I think it's, it's a sad time. And I'm hoping when things get better, that people will give, will be a little bit more committed and not just keep surfing around and really commit to have a career and not always look for the next shortcut, the next job, the next job, because the loyalty factor to themselves and to the industry, it's, 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 it's very minor right now. And because people are walking around, dancing around, they're going from place to place, and uh, they're not willing to put the time in. God forbid you call them at night or on a weekend. Reminds me what Dizzy Gillespie once said, and he said, you learn what not to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I, I listen to more jazz than ever because of that. Ah. Because there's a, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, it's uh, let me just tell this gentleman. I'll call him right back. Uh, can I call you right back? <laughs> um, it's a, a member of Mumford and Sons. So uh, yes, knowing what not to do, what not to play, where not to go. You know the signs are there. If you think about your failures, all of us in our, in, in our in our life, they really didn't have the boxes that we know are right. Whether you're whether you're planning a class, whether you're booking students, whether you're booking a trip for your family, you kind of know, but you go against because your ego gets in the way or you got caught up in a, in, a, in a gossip thing, but you know star quality, you know good songs, you know great production when you hear it, you know a fan and a crowd vibing off each other. And those are the indicators of why you should sign an artist. Mm -hmm. And when I don't listen to that because I'm distracted is when you fail. Daniel Glass, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It's been fun. It's been fun. I, any, anything for Steve Leeds. <laughs> an honor. That's right. Yes, we, we will pay Steve Leeds some money. Uh, yes, and in honor, of, in honor of the great Wendy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We, okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
And Dr. Esteban, thank you very much yes. for Music Biz 101 and more. You too, my great co-host. And what do we say at the end of every show? It was very good. Right. And what do we say at the end of every show? Well, we say different things. Yeah, we certainly do. We don't, and neither one of us says hello, especially. No. But I'm one. I, if, if I were to fill out a questionnaire and somebody says, what are you going to say at the end of, end of every show? I'm going to say, adios! Adios! I could be whatever you need and I'm so to see all yours nightmare that's me There, I can sugarcoat.